0: There's a bazaar that is set up there. So I was going there to get a few things for 8th March. While I was returning, I got off from the Riksha near a canal. There's a canal there. Um, when I got off there, and this uh, woman colleague was with me at that time, we were just talking about what we we're going to do the next day, how we're going to plan for things. And we didn't realize when, but a guy came from ahead and groped my left breast, and he was about to flee, but I got, but I caught him, because I was hurt. I had felt what he had done, and I had caught him, and I didn't let him go.
1: We all know that women deal with violence on a daily basis, even if we think that it doesn't happen to us we know it happens to someone. I'm Amiya Nagarajan, and this is Hear Me Too, a podcast that explores the extent of violence against women in India, urban and rural, and the second and third level effects it has on our society and economy. I'm working in collaboration with UN Women, as part of the 16 Days of Activism movement for 2018. Last week, we looked at how violence happens at home and who inflicts it. Today, we're going to look at violence at work. My first question was, what is the law on workplace violence in India?
2: Um, My name is Nihira Sood, I'm a lawyer. I focus on women's rights and I'm uh, currently also researching um, the role of criminal law in the women's movement. We're specifically asking about uh, violence against women at the workplace. Then the primary law is the Prevention of Sexual Harassment Act that was passed in 2013. Now, that Act has a very broad definition of who is covered, as in by by way of what category of employees are covered and what defines an employee. And it also has a very broad definition of where they are protected, what is a workplace. So essentially what the Act covers is Wherever you may travel or visit in the course of your work is an extended workplace for you and your employer uh, is duty-bound to protect you in any such workplace and your employment organization's ICC has jurisdiction over any um, act of violence or assault or harassment that takes place in such a workplace. The second category is, the definition is of employees or workers, which covers anybody who visits your workplace or the workplace of the employment organization in the course of their work, which would cover vendors, uh, people coming for meetings, essentially, what is an extended
1: workplace for someone else. The complainant can choose which ICC they wish to approach.
2: Internal complaints committees are required to be set up for any organization that employs more than 10 people. Anything less than that, the complaints are supposed to go to a local uh, complaints committee, which is required to be set up in every district. Right. And they then when I say ICC, it means the local complaints committee for any organization where the ICC does not apply or has not been set up. Right. And It's important also to know that even a dwelling place um, would constitute a workplace for people working there, such as domestic staff, and the provisions of the Sexual Harassment Act would apply there as well.
1: Workplaces with more than 10 employees, which includes contract workers, temporary hires, and so on, are required to set up ICCs. But we tend to think of workplaces as offices, places with desks and computers, but in fact, Workplaces can be anywhere. They can be farms and factories. They can be our own homes. They can be places of worship, buses, trains, and schools. To understand more about sexual harassment in workplaces in India, I spoke to Amarpreet Kaur from HR Helpdesk. Working with UN Women and the Ministry for Women and Child Development, HR Helpdesk carried out a massive survey of women in the workplace. This national survey reached out to more than 2 lakh women with over 35,000 responding to talk about the sexual harassment that women face in the workplace. The 35 sectors include agriculture, tea, textiles, hospitals, services, hospitality and education. Their findings are not surprising at all and it appears that most women in most workplaces find the environment hostile.
0: More than 20% women would quit job because of one or the other form of hostile behaviour they are subjecting to or
1: they, they have been facing in the first five years of their careers. The results of the survey will be revealed in detail by the ministry later on, but Amitpreet was able to discuss some of the trends that they saw.
0: Challenges are more or less similar. Uh, the approach of dealing with them may differ because the understanding of the behaviour differs. We are failing miserably when it comes to knowing our own rights, about if there is any any mechanism available to us, if there is any law or legislature presented to us. So we are failing miserably are there. And women respond, uh, basis you know what is the threshold point for them, and when they think that this is becoming over me, or I am not able to handle it any longer,
1: that is the threshold point they choose to respond or choose to quit. She said that the one common thread everywhere, the one question they were asked again and again was this. Will I lose my job if I answer truthfully? This fear of losing your job is a big one for women, especially since many women in India fight long and hard to have the right to go to work. It's something that has come up in several of the recent MeToo stories as well, where women have chosen to stay silent or put up with abusive environments because if they go home, they'll never be able to leave that world again. We are not able
0: to... You know help them when it comes to effective redressal mechanism we are not able to help them when it comes to awareness we are not able to help them to have faith in the processes and policies which are being you know presented or available in any company in any MNC or any school or colleges they are part of so we have people practices we have people policies in place but Are they actually using it, implementing it, demonstrating it? The culture is very different. When a woman tries to complain or make a formal complaint, there are n number of factors which you know discourages her, which is including the managers, the HR, who would discourage her to you know withdraw the complaint because it would impact direct impact on her job.
1: One of the problems is, of course, that workplaces are so different. And what makes the environment hostile varies so much from workplace to workplace. For a domestic worker, it's not being allowed leave or being shouted at. In a factory or a farm, you don't have bathrooms, you don't have breaks. You have to constantly negotiate your pay. In a typical office, the most common violence is verbal sexual harassment. People say things, make jokes, no one is sure where the lines are and why they feel uncomfortable. Regardless of where you are, though, it seems that there's no recourse, no guaranteed justice. Regardless of sector or job level, at the end, you give up. Because, while we have a fairly progressive law in place, there's no straightforward way to fight that battle and not lose your job or your dignity or your professional reputation or all of the above. This is only made several times worse when you're already marginalized by your identity, as many of the women who don't work in offices are. I spoke to activist Anita Cheria, who's in Bangalore, about what she's seen. It's a bad phone line, unfortunately, so you're going to hear me more than her. Anita works with garment workers and poor karmikas, who are sanitation workers in Bangalore, and she's also familiar with the situations of many domestic workers. We mostly discussed the situation of the garment workers. Anita told me the typical profile of these women. The preferred worker would be a semi-literate migrant woman Age between 18 and 35, physically fit, socially isolated, and inexperienced.
3: It's a very extractive industry, basically. And they would prefer workers who don't have a voice, who don't have a say, who would immediately be obedient, like, in quotes, like, just fit into the production, uh, into the production cycle like a, a part of a machine would fit in.
1: Amarpreet told me that the people running the factories say straight out that if we make women aware of their rights, they will keep complaining, which adversely affects productivity and morale. Basically, if she knows her rights and demands them, well, it's a pain point for us. As it is, these are women that are not equipped to fight back about anything. Whatever resources they do have go into the constant negotiation they need to do in the workplace. While we do have labor laws that define what a workplace should provide, in these situations, they need to negotiate bathroom breaks, lunch breaks, getting paid on time, and countless other things. And they are always harassed. When this is the situation, sexual harassment
3: is one of the more dominant and the most unpleasant forms of harassment. But there are also other forms of harassment, like not getting paid on time, not being allowed to take these breaks or... um, No, like even a simple thing like having a lunch break that is 30 minutes for 30 minutes or if you get a little late, you get shouted at in front of everybody else.
1: The few women who try to change the situation don't fare well. Corroborating what Amarpreet told me, Anita said that they get treated as adversaries in the factory and then they cannot continue to work there.
3: So most women workers, if they deal with an issue that's beyond their control, where they're not able to negotiate, the most common survival technique is to leave that factory and join another factory.
1: Anita and I began to speak of domestic workers, who, as you'll remember from what Meera said, are covered by the Prevention of Sexual Harassment Act. But one of the problems she points out is that those of us who employ them, we don't even think of them as employees.
3: The fact that this worker is professional and needs to reach on time and have enough rest is never taken for as a given.
1: We forget that they have homes and families and similar demands on their time, and we expect them to take our priorities on as their own. I need to leave for work by eight o'clock, so you better be here on time. It doesn't matter that you have to send your kids to school. The same people who are moved to tears when we hear these stories are unable to take a look at how we are with our own workers, or notice the ill-treatment of those around us. We tend to react only when things are really extreme and we don't even notice when workers are shouted at or humiliated. What is a common thread across all these stories is that these imbalances are derived from how our society is deeply patriarchal. Gopika was saying in the very first episode that one of the biggest problems we have is that all the norms in our societies are so deeply patriarchal that we cannot fight violence against women until we begin to overturn those norms there are systems that always put men in positions of power something that everyone I've interviewed has pointed out our society really needs to change and one of the first things we can do is start to open our eyes to people's lives and notice that how many things we assume are normal are really not Anita opened my eyes when she brought up the story of the nun who has been in the news for refusing to drop her accusations of sexual assault against a bishop. I had never thought about it, even in my research for this podcast, but for a nun, the church is her workplace. I take the story to Mihira to see what a legal opinion would be.
2: There are going to be cases that are unprecedented, and this would be one of them. Uh, It would certainly be up to the relevant court, uh, to decide whether or not it is a workplace, and until we have a definitive ruling on that, it's a question of interpretation. In my interpretation, it is certainly a workplace, and it's a fit case uh, to be taken uh, to be taken up in that respect. And um, and for uh, the religious institution question, if they don't have an internal complaints committee, to be penalised for it as per the act, because the act does. Um, provide for penal consequences for employers and workplaces that do not set up internal
1: complaints committees. So what could come under the purview of the Prevention of Sexual Harassment Act?
2: The Sexual Harassment Act covers um, violence and hostility against women. Um, That's again a pretty broad definition. So let me tell you what that covers and then you tell me if you're thinking of something even beyond that. Because what the Act covers is or what it defines as sexual harassment is, uh, you know, one one aspect is your standard kind of quid pro quo.
1: She means that there's a sexual favor demanded and you benefit from doing it or you suffer because you didn't. And the sexual favor could be anything sexual.
2: What the act recognizes um, is that uh, there is also, it uses the term hostile work environment. And it recognizes harassment that contributes to a hostile work environment, even if it does not um, translate into a demand or a request for sexual favors. Essentially what that what that entails is making somebody uncomfortable on account of their gender. That could be making somebody uh, uncomfortable by way of making sexually loaded remarks and innuendo. But it doesn't have to be related to sexual activity or desire. It could simply be um making remarks about a person for conforming or not conforming to a particular gender stereotype um making fun of somebody for their sexual orientation um or um you know nasty remarks about how a person is not feminine enough or masculine enough. It could be the forwarding or discussion of lewd and inappropriate jokes and things like that, which again is more in the former category. So, all of this kind of harassment that essentially is hostility and discomfort on account of your gender. So it covers a vast degree of misogyny.
1: The point is, when the act says sexual, it doesn't mean just sex. It means anything related to your gender identity. Does this mean that the workers Anita talked about could try and take action under this act? Is pay withholding or the lack of a bathroom breaks gender related?
2: in determining whether or not something is sexual harassment, you look at how what the impact is on the person and not the intent of the harasser, right?
1: Isn't it complicated to start proving the connection with gender?
2: Yes, it is. And internal complaints committees need to be trained in understanding, um, you know, what kind of proof they're looking at. You know, I think all too often we are, especially these days with, i think when these things are coming out on social media and you know you have a lot of instant trials going on people are looking for very instantaneous hard proof like you know a screenshot or something like that and it doesn't always happen like that um we've had investigations in the past where uh, you know before these things were invented uh, so it's not like we don't know how to do these investigations and how to piece together a chain of uh, circumstances and the evidence Um, minus things like DNA technology, etc. We can do it. And the thing is that ICCs need to be trained in that. And also, uh, women need to be made more aware that even without that, that doesn't mean that your complaint is going to fall flat on its face.
1: Complaints and verifying them don't come down to two one-line stories competing. There's cross-examination and scrutiny. The ICC can investigate and speak to other people to find out if there are other things that corroborate, such as, yes, I saw them leave together, or she told me she was uncomfortable, or I've seen him say these things to other people. What an ICC is then supposed to do is just piece together what has
2: happened, evaluate on the basis of the evidence, the cross-examination and all of that, and then decide which version of events sounds more probable, right? Because unlike in criminal law, where your standard of proof is that something has to be proved beyond reasonable doubt, but that's not the case here. It's mistakenly assumed that that's the standard for any kind of investigation anywhere. But in civil cases and under the Prevention of Sexual Harassment Act, anything that is not a criminal case, the standard of proof that is required is lower because the punishment is also much lower
1: the ICC needs to estimate which is the most probable version. I tried to build a timeline with Mihira about how the process works. She tells me that the complainant has up to three and sometimes six months to file a complaint. So you approach the ICC, you tell them this is my complaint, they decide to investigate. Then you have your hearings or, you know, whatever the conversations they have with all the people involved. And then what are they empowered to do at the end of
2: the day? So the ICC has ordinarily to wrap up its investigation and... Uh, everything within three months. That's the time period that they're given.
1: It also depends on whether the complainant chooses to have an inquiry or seek conciliation. Conciliation is sitting down to talk it out without finding out whether something happened and coming to some kind of agreement without any money involved. But only the complainant can seek conciliation. Otherwise, the ICC undertakes an inquiry with the investigation and cross-examination and corroboration. And this inquiry will result in a ruling that both parties have to accept. The ruling can be monetary, it can recommend termination, it can recommend reshuffle, transfer, many things. But this doesn't mean that the management will do as recommended, sadly. If the management does not implement recommendations, or if either party is unhappy with the recommendations, they can approach the high court. The ICC can also put out interim relief with the consent of the complainant, which could be something like moving them to different teams or sending someone on leave. It's important to remember that women can also initiate proceedings outside the company with the police, separately and parallel to the ICC investigation. We need change from
0: tomorrow. We need to see that confidence that, yes, somebody is there to protect me if I am going or if I am joining a workforce. There, are, there is a law, there is a transparent, robust mechanism available in the organization that will ensure that if something goes wrong with me, I will be protected and taken care of. But where we are welcoming women to join workforce, we need to ensure that there is an enabling environment being presented to them from day one.
1: Amarpreet left me with one note of hope. If we can make women aware and give them small groups where they can safely talk about things and air their doubts and feelings, they will be much more empowered. Maybe this is one way that we can correct these problematic structures. Next week, we look at the violence women face in public spaces. I'm Ameya, and this is Hear Me Too from Express Audio and UN Women India. If you like the show, please do subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Express Podcasts. Or if you prefer email, you can write to us at podcast and indianexpress.com. Thank you for listening.